oftentimes as adults, we get through our childhood and our teen years. And then as we've transformed into this new autonomous person out on our own, hopefully sometimes we've been able to disconnect ourselves from the trauma. And then once you have that space, one's able to reflect back. And hopefully at that point, people have put some more tools in the toolbox, so to speak, to be able to look back and then process what's happened to them. Another Furby's taken, parts are laying open. When the batteries corroded, someone left it broken. But he see, it's not me, left it back in 03 with my fam, with my fam. Now it's crying in a box with its friends where my childhood ends. I can hear, I can hear, hear it crying. What's in my Today's podcast guest is a prolific toy collector who curates vintage toys and makes custom care packages dripping with nostalgia. She's also worked as a licensed mental health counselor. I've chosen today's podcast guest because of her connection with vintage toys and also because I know a lot of members of the Furby community have gone through trauma or know someone who has. And so today's podcast is all about healing, helping our inner child, and how to handle life when things don't go as planned. So join me for an exciting conversation about mental health as we dive together into the Ditherverse. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Ditherverse, the Fur World podcast that deep dives into the creative minds of Furby collectors, makers, crafters, influencers, and all-around nerds in general. My name is Jay. I'm the communications mortal that lives at the behest of the Furb World family, aka the Furb World Dithering. The Furb World Dithering is a collective of elder gods and furb-adjacent beings who seek to help humanity live more joyous, creative, and fiercely compassionate lives. You can follow our adventures on Instagram and our website, furbworld.com. Today's imaginary sponsor is Fairies. Fairies. If you think they're nice, you've watched way too many Disney movies. And now, without further ado, allow me to introduce our next guest, Killers Classics, a.k.a. Michelle. So, Michelle, you're someone who specializes in vintage toy finding and selling, and you're also a mental health professional. So how did that all happen for you? So uh, when I initially started my business in 2018, I was 
leaving my mental health career path and I was just selling any and all types of vintage. And slowly over the years, I have niched down to my passions, which are 80s and 90s toys. And I'm currently in the process of niching down even further to more handmade items, which I make a lot of. I make journals, junk journals, collage art, which I make from vintage books and papers. And I also sell other vintage paper items. I've learned that it's easier to have a focus. Otherwise, you can get overrun by by vintage. Vintage can kind of take over if you don't focus and be careful about it. This is true. Vintage is a wide category. Some people even categorize the Furby as being vintage. They came out in the late 90s, which, yeah, is definitely vintage. It's 20 years is vintage. So we're, we're vintage now. <laughs> After all this time. I was more into like friendship necklaces from Claire's and lava lamps from Spencer's at that point. For me, I, I was definitely into a lot of the toys that you've posted on your Instagram, like Care Bears and My Little Ponies and... I had the Lady Lovely Locks lunchbox, a lot of L's in that sentence. <laughs> did you have the glittery one? Actually, I did, which was a big deal because we got most of the stuff that I had secondhand from either a yard sale or the flea market. So it was pretty cool. Gotcha. Now, I would love to ask you a little bit about yourself. Who are you? How would you describe yourself? How would your friends describe you? I would describe myself as an adventurous and eclectic type of person. And I, mean, I think my friends would describe me in the same way. I, I feel like I've lived probably about 10 lifetimes in this lifetime. I, I jump around a lot. I've, you know, lived in multiple states. I've pursued multiple career paths. And, you know, I just, I follow my heart. And in that way, I, I feel like I've been very successful. I mean, everyone defines success in different ways, but I define it as, you know, being true to yourself. And I've always kind of followed that path wherever it has led me, even though I've had so many people be like, oh, Michelle, like you're, you're doing this new thing and you're doing that new thing. But it's been a fulfilling journey. And so I'm kind of a free spirited, you know, go where the wind blows me type of person. That's lovely, unconventional and lovely. You know, society always tries to put people in boxes. And I think I've I've kind of fought my whole life I, I've tried to fit in the box, but I never quite fit in the box. So I'm like, you know what? I think when I got to my 30s, I was just like, you know what? No more, no more boxes for me. It's just not my journey. So once I kind of stopped resisting that, I think, you know, you, you find what's meant for you and, and things are just easier. That's lovely. It sounds like you've done a lot of personal growth to uh, explore so many different avenues. Oh, yeah. I consider myself a very spiritual person. I'm not religious. I'm, I'm spiritual. So I'm, I'm open to a lot of, of things. And I grew up with, I think one of your questions was about my childhood. Um, yeah. Seems like a good segue to that. You know, I had a pretty white, middle class, suburban childhood. I had all my needs met and, and things were pretty idyllic. We, we lived in like a seven acre wood. We had a creek. It was very peaceful in that regard, being able to connect with nature. So I, I do appreciate that about my childhood. I had a very grounding, safe place to live and my needs were met. But my father was an alcoholic and my brother, who's my older brother, kind of followed in those footsteps. He started getting into trouble when I was probably in middle school. And that's when things kind of were a little rougher for me. I do have a history of trauma from that period in my life. So I, I was a resilient kid. I still was the straight A kid, got 
myself to where I needed to be. And it wasn't until like later in my 20s when I did pursue a career in counseling where I started doing that healing work. Right. You know, they say adulthood is trying to heal from your childhood. And I think we all experience childhood difficulties and it's a matter of healing those as an adult, but it's not always easy. There's not a lot of awareness of it in our culture. And so a lot of people grow up not realizing like, oh, that thing that happened to me, like that was pretty significant or that was traumatic or maybe I should get help for this. A lot of times people just write it off as normal because of the lack of awareness. There's just a lot of things that happen that we don't realize affect us so profoundly. And then we carry that with us and they do need to be transformed so that we can grow and heal. Right. That's very well said. Oftentimes, it's really hard to tell whether or not you've gone through trauma until after the fact. It's like distance can make you a little bit more subjective to your own life. And you can kind of see, oh, yeah, that was a problem or that was something that I need to heal from. So I'm wondering, what are some of the ways in which people can know whether or not they've been through childhood trauma? Like maybe they suspect it, but what are some sort of questions they can ask themselves to help them determine if what they went through was actually childhood trauma or not? So trauma is trauma is an emotional response to any event that one perceived to be life-threatening. And it could be one event, it could be multiple events, it could be multiple different things going on all the time. You know, there's acute trauma, which is like a single event. There's chronic trauma is when you're experiencing it repeatedly. And then complex trauma is when essentially you're experiencing multiple traumas repeatedly. I would say most people in the world experience trauma at some point in their lives. It's just a lot of us don't have like the keywords or the vocabulary to know that that's what it was. I mean, myself included, you know, I grew up with domestic violence and I didn't know that I had experienced trauma or domestic violence until I went into counseling school and I got the vocabulary for it. Like, oh, that was that was what I went through. And there is a healing that, that, that takes place when you can put words to what you've experienced. I agree with that. When you realize that there are other people that you can relate to who've experienced similar things, it's just a matter of coming into that awareness. And a lot of times in working with children, one of the difficulties is that their emotional like, and cognitive capacity to understand what's going on, they haven't grown that part of their brains yet. You know, they're just trying to survive their daily lives if someone's lucky, then they get referred to a counselor or they find a neighbor or a teacher or someone in their lives who is a safe person who can kind of help and guide them through it. But oftentimes, especially with childhood trauma, um, you know, getting through the day to day and coping with the day to day is the focus. But there's a lot of growing and healing that just can't happen that young because there's not the mental and emotional capacity to process it all. And, and that's why oftentimes as adults, um, you know, we get through our childhood and our teen years. And then as, as adults, as we've transformed into this new autonomous person out on our own, maybe hopefully sometimes we've been able to disconnect ourselves from the trauma or the people who brought the trauma. And then once you have that space, one's able to kind of reflect back. And hopefully at that point, you know, people have developed, put some more tools in the toolbox, so to speak, to be able to look back and then process what's happened to them. 
You make a lot of really great points. And yeah, it's especially hard for kids going through trauma. They don't have the resources to deal with it. Their brain isn't fully developed. They're very easy targets in a sense if people are going to be nefarious towards them. And I think it's especially hard for kids growing up with trauma. It's like you're especially vulnerable as well because you're reliant on your parents. And if they're not good to you or if they let you stay in a situation that's consistently traumatic, you're especially vulnerable. I also feel like when you grow up with repeated trauma, it's a lot like a tree having to grow around a, a post or a pole or a fence or something in the way. To outsiders, it looks super weird. It's like this, this isn't okay, this isn't normal. But for the person experiencing it, it feels kind of normal. Like, well, I, I did this as a function of survival. And, and I can see how it would take time to unpack that later in life when you aren't experiencing that trauma regularly, especially when you have more distance and context and, you know, more of your brain developed and more things to be aware of than you did before. Children often, they just don't have the options to leave. Children are victims of their circumstances. This is a difficult example to use because, you know, abusive relationships it can be very, very difficult for adults to leave abusive relationships because often abusers are dangerous and manipulative and it can be very tricky to leave even as an adult. But a child has even less control over that situation. You know, they're relying on the adults to keep them safe. And if they don't have adults who can keep them safe, they're, they're stuck. And it's kind of like divine intervention if, if someone is able to, to see that and, and help that child. You know, I, I worked in child protective services. That was actually my last job in the field where I was officially like done. But a lot of kids are out there living in unsafe conditions and homes and, and there's no easy way to fix that. It's the wrong word to fix it. But I really feel for children because they can't help the home that they were born into or the adults that are taking care of them. Adults have more control over where they go and what they do. But at the same time, I think one of your questions was related to generational trauma. A lot of times when you have generational trauma, there's a lot of lack of awareness of mental health and of what trauma is. And so because people aren't necessarily aware of what they've experienced and how it has impacted them, they often repeat the same patterns or they don't get help. And so you repeat these patterns and then your kids experience similar things. And then unless those kids have some sort of intervention, they will often repeat the same patterns. And so it keeps just playing out generation after generation. Those are good points. One of the problems with generational trauma is that it is really hard to break out of. Oftentimes, part of that reason is financial. Um, if someone doesn't have the means or the ability right now to go to therapy, but they could really benefit from it and they're interested in it, what are some of the things that they could do maybe instead to help them with their healing process? Like, are there any books or anything they could read? A lot of the books that I would recommend were books that I read as a clinician, like as a, as a therapist. So it's more from the perspective of helping other people, I would say, but I would suggest, you know, there are a lot of workbooks out there. It's easy, more easily to access, like you could go on Amazon or there are a lot of other book websites where you can find workbooks that have kind of guided activities. So if one can't afford therapy, there's books that kind of have a they're educational, but they're also interactive and in that they have exercises that 
you can kind of go through and work towards. And of course, there's so many different types of therapy for trauma. The the types of therapy in the world, you know, art therapy and play therapy and music therapy. And then there's cognitive behavioral therapy. There's EMDR. So there's just endless types of therapy. It's a matter of finding what, what one connects with the best. Right. Then sometimes I feel like there's the opposite idea of that. It's kind of the flip side, this idea that anything can be therapy if you try hard enough. Like there's a lot of Instagram reels where people say, this is my therapy or I crafted because it was cheaper than therapy. And the idea of it's cheaper than therapy doesn't necessarily mean it replaces therapy. I was wondering maybe if you could talk to that a little bit. We're all for people getting help and doing what feels right. But at the same time, it's like there's still a unique benefit to therapy that isn't the same as you know, quote, retail therapy. That's a valid point for sure. I mean, clinical therapy is different from the expression of like retail therapy. I would say, you know, those kinds of expressions of like retail therapy, those are more like coping mechanisms. It's not therapy. It might be therapeutic because you get that rush of endorphins when you're doing it. But the difference is that, you know, with coping mechanisms or coping skills, when I worked with kids, we'd, we'd be like, let's let's make a list of coping skills. Essentially, you know, coping skills are things that give us temporary relief from whatever difficult feeling we're experiencing. So shopping, yes, can definitely give someone temporary relief. Like, oh, I've had a stressful day. I'm going to go shop and then I feel better. The issue with that is that when you're, when it's over, when that endorphin rush is gone, you're in the same place you were before. I mean, you might have more stuff that might make you happy later, but then you're going to just going to get that itch again where you need to go shop again. And the same thing can be said for people can use alcohol and drugs in the same way. You know, you get you get that hit, that endorphin rush, and it's great for the time being. But then when it's over, you got to go back and do it again. Whereas, you know, actual therapy, it's more of a transformative process. You are actually transforming something into something else so that when you're done, you are different or you've changed or you've healed or something has shifted. So coping is more of like a short term way to get by. And there are definitely healthier coping skills than others. As a therapist, if I had a working with a teen, for example, who wants to smoke marijuana, sure, that helps you in the the short term, but it also has negative consequences, such as you get in trouble for it. It's illegal. You can get in legal trouble for it. I mean, depending on the state, but usually for kids off limits anyway. Whereas we might redirect and be like, well, what's another coping skill that can also give you a rush that isn't going to get you in trouble, such as like exercise or drawing, things like that, things that are accessible, things that aren't going to have a negative impact with repeated, you know, doing the, the thing. Thank you so much for clarifying that. I feel like that's going to help a lot of people take some further steps that they need in order to get the healing that works best for them. So the next thing I want to talk about, I know it's really near and dear to your heart, it is killer. Could you maybe tell us who is the impetus behind your Instagram handle, aka who is or who was killer? Oh, killer. I would describe killer as like my one true love, which my husband and I joke about that because <laughs> I say, you know, if, if it was a thing to marry your dog, like you would be obsolete, like killer, <laughs> he would have been it, right? <laughs> 
Um, Killer was my, uh, and I say he still is because he's still, I believe, in the afterlife and the unseen. He's still with me, but he was my dog. I got him when I was 20. I was a week short of 21 years old and he lived to be 16. So we had quite a journey together. We grew up together. You know, he taught me how to be a mom, essentially. And we we both kind of went through that growing up phase together. And we were actually, we're very similar. He's stubborn and independent, just like me. We learned a lot from each other. We adventured a lot together. We lived in Ohio, in Kentucky, Chicago, Seattle, and back again. So we've been, and it was just me and him. So we we were on quite a journey together. And he was also very young-hearted. He, he played, he liked to go out and do things. He was adventurous. He was my adventure buddy. So when I thought about this business, I definitely, I knew I wanted to name it for him because he's like the other part of my soul. I wanted a way to immortalize him. Um, but he also embodies the essence of Killer's Classics. And he's, you know, got that cute furry face. And, you know, I'm actually planning on designing a logo of, you know, my cute furry vintage dog. So, so that's, that's killer in a nutshell. Oh, I love it. I love it. And, and you said, how old, how old did you say you were when you got killer? When, when he came into your life? I was almost 21 years old. Oh yeah. That's very critical. I'm 37 now and he passed away a few months ago. Um, I think it's going on three months now. So um, oh. definitely a huge part of my life that, um, you know, I'll never be able to repeat that. And I wouldn't want to, I'm glad we had that time together. Thank you for sharing that. That is a lovely, lovely story. And I know that's not the kind of thing that everybody might be open to talking about. So we really appreciate that you are here to talk about this. He was my wonder dog. Even in his, the past couple of years, he had these mysterious health issues that no one knew what was going on with him. Like they would run tests and no one knew exactly what was going on. And luckily when we were living on the West coast, when the pandemic hit, and then we moved back to the Midwest and I have an amazing vet here who put him on these natural supplements and he healed right up. And he, you know, it's just, he got an extra three years because he just miraculously, these things kept happening, but he just kept pulling through and it's the perfect, it was the perfect ending for him because we just had such a magical journey. And even in the end, he was magical through and through. Right. And there is kind of a magic to it sometimes. Like some animals give you signs that they're ready to go or they start behaving differently and, and it's good as their family to be aware of their needs as they change. And there's a lesson there too. I am, you know, I think that animals are much more intelligent um, and intuitive than we as humans give them credit for. And they teach us in ways that we might not be aware of, but it's not easy. It's not easy going through that kind of um, an end of life process when it's kind of becomes traumatic in a sense because of what they're going through and what you go through to try and make them comfortable. Right. It really is a, a journey. And I think for anyone out there considering having a pet, that is something to keep in mind is that, yes, you might get this pet as a baby or it might be a rescue that's a little bit older, but you're the one who's going to be with this being at the end. You're the one, you know, that they make that transition to the end with. And that's something to really, I think, something to really honor. And it's something that I think people should be aware of and 
in a way, knowing that something is going to end and that you're going to be the one that's there to witness that and to make sure that they're comfortable and that everything goes through that natural process. That's that's a really big deal. That's a really special thing to do. Animals offer such uncomplicated companionship. Humans are complicated. Um, human relationships are complicated. Regardless, you know, you can have the healthiest relationship with your mother or partner or brother, sister, whatever, but you're bound to run into some some ups and downs and misunderstandings. But with animals, it's just not like that. I mean, you might have a, a few behavior issues here and there, but for the most part, they are there through thick and thin and it's unconditional always. And I think especially for people who have a complicated history with trusting humans, with feeling safe with other humans, an animal is just a breath of fresh air. I think that's why Killer and I had such an amazing journey is that, you know, I didn't always trust people, but I wanted companionship. I didn't always like being around people, but I wanted companionship and animals offer that. And so, yes, they can, they can be such a comfort and such a gift, especially when you might have a, a hard time relating or trusting or sharing your life with, with humans. That's a really beautiful point. And I feel like since I've started this podcast, uh, a lot of the true, really intense Furb enthusiasts have been, and the Furby makers have really, so far, a lot of them have said, I got into this during the pandemic. They're like, you know, I had it, I had a Furby as a child or I knew what they were, but then I saw it during the pandemic and I was like, this is, this is what I must do for the rest of my life. And like, they did like a, they did like a full pivot. They're like, this is it. You know, they just deep dive and and now it's time for a deep dive. What I find so interesting about that is what you just said, the, the same way that we often feel about animals because they don't judge. Okay, sorry listeners, real quick. <laughs> no diss on Furbies. Um, but, you know, a Furby is not a dog, um, and a dog is not a Furby, nor, nor should they be. We don't want that. <laughs> but I, I feel like there's a lot in common that Furbies have with animals and that they don't judge. It has a very cute face, and for those of us that, you know, we stand Furbies, we love that they have little personalities, and they, there is an AI type of component within them, so the more you interact with them, the more things you unlock, you have the potential to, quote unquote, as they say, turn your Furby evil if you want, which so far I know no one that's done that. Thank you. Or you have the ability to make them, uh, you know, happier. Or if they sneeze, you feed them and they get better. If they have low batteries, you know, they, they will let you know in not so subtle ways. So there's a lot of complex things going on with this specific kind of toy. It's not a Teddy Ruxpin where you push a button and it tells you a recorded story. Uh, no diss on Teddy Ruxpin and those fans. I love them too. And I will stand that. But but Furbies are, it's a hybrid. Actually, I don't know if you know, but um, Caleb Chung, the co-creator of Furby, I think he's the man, in my opinion, who gave Furby Furby's soul. He said he wanted to create a toy that would be a child's first friend. And I think that's, that's such a sweet notion. And I really think that among the Furby community, that's sort of what makes them very different than, say, people that are like, I just love Rainbow Bright and I can't get enough. Great, Rainbow Bright is fantastic, but like Furby's is a little more complex. The interaction and having the sense that you're not alone. I think that's really important, especially, you know, I like what you said, that, you know, a child's first friend. When you are a child, your world is so small. You have, you know, your family, maybe you have friends, depending on how old you are or depending on your community or, or whatnot. But toys, you know, most kids have toys of some sort and to have that kind of interaction to be able to watch something grow and change is a really unique 
um, experience. It, it is. And I think that's why people really gravitated back to it during the pandemic, back to Furby um, specifically. It's the same thing with, you know, a lot of people got, quote, pandemic puppies, guilty as charged. <laughs> I, I do feel like during the pandemic, a lot of people turned to Furby because it was a comfort from their childhood. It was a memory. It was something that was very positive. And they couldn't just go out and see their friends. They couldn't just drop in and hang out with, you know, if they have a good relationship, they couldn't just drop in to see their family. They couldn't even, you know, travel or go outside their apartment. So it was quite a serious thing. And and I'm not saying the pandemic is over uh, in no uncertain terms. Um, I think Furby's you know, been there for that. And I think that's been partly responsible for the resurgence of Furby for a lot of us. Yeah, I definitely think that the pandemic definitely offered people an opportunity to kind of go inward and search for, you know, comforts, uh, whether they, you know, be for from childhood or otherwise, but definitely there's been a uh, renewed interest and with, you know, social media and being online, you can also connect with these communities of people who are interested in the, the same things. And that also brings a level of comfort in a sense to know that you're not alone. And, oh, there's there's other fans out there who are like me who like this thing. That can also be a great comfort. Exactly. So speaking of comfort, I, I do want to talk a little bit about specifically, it. you know, it, given your background and everything, how, how would you say that finding relics from your childhood, you know, at yard sales or garage sales or on Craigslist or whatever. Um, how would you say that finding that helps sort of heal some of the childhood trauma? Again, not as a replacement for therapy, but just as a, a reclamation of something that was lost. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head right there is as as we get older, and we we move forward in time, and we get further and further away from our childhood. Um, there is a great comfort in that nostalgia in and finding something from the past, it, it almost kind of can reawaken some of that childhood innocence, which I feel like as adults, we a lot of us lose that. That's one of the reasons why I I always worked with kids and not adults, because kids are just more open and they're more innocent and they are more imaginative and pliable. They're still growing and changing. As a therapist, it's easier to help a child because they are more flexible in that way. Whereas as, as adults, you know, life kind of beats us up over time. And sometimes we, we lose hope and we lose that imaginative spark and we, and we lose that innocence and that feeling of freedom. And so I think when we do stumble upon things from our childhood and it does kind of awaken that nostalgic, you know, people will be like, oh, memory unlocked. There is a power to that. It's like, oh, like I might be almost 40 years old, but I can still feel that carefree feeling again because I found this thing and it reminds me of it and it's it's that comfort that can be very very powerful yeah they're they're like little emotional touchstones in a way where it's like an item that is almost imbued with the sense of magic where you pick it up or you see it and it's like suddenly you're back it's like you know they say smells are very closely linked to memory like smelling fresh cut green grass or Ron's toothpaste in you know Harry Potter if you're Hermione you know like that type of thing toys are very much the same way so for me like when I see your Instagram posts and like little boxes that you've curated I'm like oh my gosh I don't know if it's a ruler or a slap bracelet but I think I had one of those you know it's like this is good 
I want to talk also about the shift that really happened between 1970s and 80s toys. Now, I was only in the 70s for like two weeks, so I I don't remember it. But I've seen photos of toys from the 70s. I had toys from the 70s because I went to flea markets and yard sales. But there was a massive change in the 80s in the world of toys. Do you want to talk a little bit about that aesthetic and maybe what was going on in the zeitgeist that might have led to that? Do Do you have any ideas on that or any thoughts? I feel like there was a huge shift between, you know, the, you know, earthy bohemian 70s and the electric 80s. I feel like in the 70s, there's a lot of social movements. And then in the in the 80s, we're transforming to the pop culture, like the musicians, like Madonna, and you've got the TV and the movies. There's just a lot more influences that were more regals the wrong word, but you you've just got that that like glamour, like that Hollywood glamour. You've got the the glitz and the glitter and the iridescence. And yeah, there is definitely a huge shift in, in fashion and, and style. And you, you definitely see it in the toys. And that's one of the reasons I feel I feel so lucky to be have been born in the 80s because I'm like reincarnated fairy, like glitter and iridescence. That's like my my love language. So growing up with all of that, it was just so magical. No one did it better than the 80s because once you get into the 90s, things started to become cheaper and more simplified. But even in the 80s, you you have so much detail. Um, I mean, it was, it was, these toys are luxurious in a way, whereas in the seventies, it was much more grounded um, and simple. Right. They really were. And I feel like a lot of that might've been a response to the end of the cold war. This sense that in the West, there's now opulence and color and isn't it amazing and glittery and sparkly. I feel like in the eighties, that was really reflected in the toys that we have. It was also reflected a lot in the television as well. Slow down, it's time for a deep dive. I think one of the best examples of this is cartoons. When you look at cartoons for kids in the 70s, they were a lot of Hanna-Barbera cartoons like Scooby-Doo that were pretty basic. I mean, they were colorful, but the movement was pretty simple. The staging was pretty simple. They used a lot of the same shots again and again with just slightly different backgrounds. It was kind of repetitive. Whereas the 80s happened, it was like this explosion of color and wonder, and they really freed up the kind of animation that could be done on television for kids. Uh, When it came to cartoons, there was like Pound Puppies, Gem, The Get Along Gang, Inspector Gadget, Muppet Babies, one of my all-time favorites, My Little Ponies, Care Bears, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Count Duckula, if any of you remember that one. There was He-Man, there was She-Ra, there was Transformers. And then over on Disney, you had really cool shows like The Wuzzles or The Gummy Bears or one of my favorites, The Raccoons or Chip and Dale's Rescue Rangers or DuckTales, which, as we all know, became DuckTales, the movie Treasure of the Lost Lamp. There was just so much goodness in cartoons in the 80s that was so bright and colorful and different, and I think it really set a tone. So I want to ask you, what were some of your favorite franchises in the 80s when it came to TV shows, groupings of toys, you name it? Well, so, I mean, I was I was raised a Barbie girl, for sure. Like my mom had display Barbies on my dresser when I was like one year old. So I was through and through a Barbie girl, but Barbie is like time eternal. If I'm going to speak specifically to the 80s, I would say that my favorite cartoon was probably Rainbow Bright. I didn't have a lot of the toys. I had one plush. I had the Kitty Bright plush that I loved dearly, but I loved the cartoon and that little jingle. Even before I started collecting toys again as an adult, that jingle hit me in my core of of nostalgia. I would definitely say Rainbow Bright was my favorite cartoon. Regarding my favorite toy of the 80s specifically, now is actually 
a toy that I never had um, was Moon Dreamers. Moon Dreamers, my cousins had them when I was growing up and my cousins were a few years older than me and my brother's a few years older than me. So I remember going over to their house and I would kind of be left out because I was younger, but they were playing with these, you know, glittery glow in the dark, iridescent, cosmic, magical toys. And, oh, I, I just, I was so jealous. I wanted them so bad. Those were definitely something that I missed out on in the eighties, which I have now. And they're my favorite toys now. Yes, we had such great toys in the 80s. And one of the other things the 80s toys and 80s cartoons really started to do was position, you know, the idea of the hero as the central focus of the story, or at least a group of heroes like the Care Bears. And I don't know about you, but I feel like a lot of those big 80s movies and TV shows with, you know, the main character, the main hero who saves the town, especially in the West, that spoke to a lot of hero worship. The idea that the hero is your central character. Even today in modern storytelling, you have, you know, the hero's journey, you have Dan Harmon's story circle, which focuses on breaking down different aspects of the hero's journey. And I think in Western culture, that is a very dangerous idea. It's this idea that, not to say that as individuals we are powerless, but this idea that says, you alone can make a difference. One person can just start the revolution and end it and do everything. You know, like Hamilton can single-handedly or Mulan can single-handedly, you know, like when we look at the stories that we tend to look up to, it's there's very much a hero worship. And I'm not saying that there weren't people in history and currently that are doing incredible things, but they don't act alone. And while it's great to have heroes, it's dangerous to only focus on the individual. An individual can be taken down, an individual can be vulnerable. Whereas if you want to build an effective revolution, you need to have a movement, which requires a whole bunch of people that are organized. And I think it's so dangerous when you look at, say, in more recent history, you look at like the story of Martin Luther King and you ask most children, what do you know about Martin Luther King? Like, oh, he led the civil rights movement. He and it's all about just him. I'm not saying he didn't do great stuff and wasn't doing great stuff, but there were other players in that. And that's what history tends to not focus on as much is that there was a whole group and really organized people behind him. You look at like Malcolm X, really organized community behind him and it wasn't just him and it, again it wasn't just him it was a lot of women it was a lot of non-binary people it was a lot of communities and bunches of people coming together and organizing and I think that is part of the key to undoing these systems that are driving us into the ground as as a world or destroying the planet collectively like in a similar way we're taught to do our part and recycle and save the planet but that's kind of a lie sure individuals recycling can affect a tiny change but it's nothing compared to the output of the fossil fuels industry and the output of larger corporations or even the military and the fossil fuels that they use annually. And keeping the public in the dark like that is largely how these larger systems are destroying the planet. Recycling's great, but the truth is most plastic will never be recycled and plastic is actually a byproduct of the fossil fuel industry. <laughs> so it's like, oh, once you see how things are connected, you can start to make more substantial changes. It's not a function of wishing to be the hero and having that energy. It is taking that energy, if you do have it, and using it to organize, uh, connect, figure out ways to affect change so that together we can all move the stone out of the way or whatever it is that we're trying to affect as a species. As a species, we are capable of such great change. I mean, look at us. We're destroying the planet and, you know, like we didn't even try. It's horrible. We can also affect incredible positive change is what I'm thinking. And from what I'm hearing you say, it sounds like a lot of this ties into building empathy, building self-awareness, because I feel like that is kind of the key. Less ego, more self-awareness, more being aware of what you need, taking care of yourself when you need to. Again, that ties back into toys for a lot of us, like reclaiming parts of what was lost because the, there is work to be done. And it's, I mean, I want to say it's, it's like a sacred kind of work. Yes, 
for sure. And I, I think there is an overemphasis in our culture. You know, there's this overemphasis on the bright, shiny things, right? Like you were saying, there's so much focus on the hero or the leader, the voice of the movement. But, but really, there's so much subtle power that's going on underneath the surface that might not be bright and shiny. I feel like one of the issues with social media, for example, is you've got so much content, so much connection, but it often can be very shallow. There's so much depth to life that we don't always capture when we're scrolling or when we're just looking at the pretty pictures or the little glimpse into to someone's online life. There's so much depth that happens in real life, just in your own day to day, in the relationships around you, like growth and change and transformation often are not pretty and often are not quick. That's another obsession we have is this quick, over-caffeinated, over-ambitious culture that we live in. We want to see things quickly. We want results fast. That's not, like, as you said, the sacredness, the sacredness really lies in that, that what's, what's lies beneath what's happening slowly, that, that transformation and that healing can take months, years, decades to, to, to happen. But it's the little small day to day things that, that add up to that. I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding about what our lives or what our growth ought to look like. There's this, you know, myth or this dream that we can buy this pill and lose all this weight really fast. Like, no, you, if you really want to make a, a lasting, sustainable change, you have to do the work. And it's sometimes so slow and, and steady and tedious, but that's where the richness really is. You're right. It's like good things are worth like they say, fighting for good things are worth working towards, and they don't happen immediately. Not usually. They, they don't happen overnight. You no know, change can take a long time, especially when you're talking about the kind of work that's like self-work. So I want to talk for a minute about how might we change the system, especially in the United States when it comes to health care, when it comes to mental health care. Unfortunately, in the United States, that's something that is tied to one's job, which when you really look at it as a concept is ridiculous. It's like the right to health care, the right to mental health care should be universal because it's something everybody needs. It shouldn't be viewed as a luxury or something that you only get sometimes when you can afford it. Because let's be honest, existence can be a struggle and it can be especially hard for people who have ongoing issues or for people that have been through trauma or for people that are recovering from various things. And I think for most of us, if you live long enough, you're going to go through some of those things, sometimes all at the same time. And those issues can really be a problem, especially if they're not addressed. So what are some of the ways in your mind that we could change the system, that we could fight for more universal health care rights and universal mental health care rights? How can we make health care uh, and mental health care more accessible to people? And also, how can we, you know, break the system? <laughs> because the system that got us here isn't going to get us to a better place. Right. Well, I, I definitely think that the way that things are going, there has to be change. We're only digging ourselves into a grave. We can only keep going so much further like this before the bottom falls out. Having worked in the healthcare system as a therapist and understanding, you know, just as a human, how difficult it is to 
obtain and afford physical health care. I mean, mental health care is way, way down on the bottom rung. You know, it's hard enough for people just to get physical health care, which, you know, as a whole, our society recognizes is important and relevant. But mental health care, society does not yet recognize fully that that is important and relevant for everyone. So the, the problem is, is, is big. Because, you know, I think starting with, I I believe in that we should have universal health care, hands down. Um, Everyone deserves to have health care. It shouldn't be those who can afford, you know, $300 a month. Sometimes it's more. Or those who are working the the grueling nine to five who work for a corporation that can give you insurance, which you still have to pay hundreds of dollars a month. It, It shouldn't be that way. A lot of people complain about how sick our society is, but our society is not going to get better unless we heal people. This is so true. We can't keep putting Band-Aids on things. Starting at a young age, you know, children need to have social and emotional learning in schools. Kids need to understand what feelings are and if they're having difficult feelings, how to express them in a safe way. You know, a lot of parents don't know how to teach these things to kids. And so kids grow up not knowing. And unless things get really bad in school, a lot of times kids go on with having issues, whether it's, you know, they internalize them or externalize them. But they, unless it's a severe case, they often will go on and become adults who still have these issues and then pass them on to their children. So it's it's a huge multifaceted issue. It starts with the recognition that we have to help each other. We can't just wait for our government to make the right call. Because as we've seen, that's not necessarily going to happen. Or if it is going to happen, who knows if it's going to happen anytime soon. I think every single person has a responsibility just to themselves. You know, if we all worked on ourselves and we all became better human beings for ourselves, if we all did our own healing, if we all looked at our own issues and said, hey, you know, I have an issue with my temper. Maybe I should work on on that so that my relationships are better in my family. Because if you improve yourself and just one relationship around you, that will reverberate out. Oftentimes when we look at our society as a whole, it it seems so overwhelming and so daunting. Like, how am I going to fix the system? How am I going to burn down the system? Well, you can't as an individual, you can't take that on. But what you can do is, is work on yourself. You can work on your relationships. It it, it starts small and it like ripples out. Every single human being, regardless of who you are, where you live, how much money you have, everyone can do that. Everyone has the power to do their own self-work. And I think it starts there. Right. Self-work is a really good place to start. Having empathy, learning how to have empathy is also an important thing and being able to connect with others and and understand that we're all more similar than we are different. Um, there's a lot of division going on right now, and I think if if we could look at ourselves and look at our neighbors and be like, you know what, we might disagree on certain things, but in the grand scheme of things, we're all humans who want to live happy, healthy, safe lives, and we're able to meet our needs. If we could just recognize that, I think we could we could transform a lot in our society. Right, I agree. So I also want to talk a little bit about the benefits of social media and also 
the benefits of shallow connections and also sort of the downfalls of them. Shallow connections didn't used to be, I think, as valuable until the pandemic. And suddenly we weren't really allowed to go anywhere for our own safety. We weren't allowed to have casual conversations with people at the grocery store or at the bookstore or at whatever store you happen to go to. Unfortunately, it's all revolving around capitalism, but you know what I mean. Going anywhere in person wasn't really a thing. So online, on social media specifically, casual connections, casual conversations became much more common. And I think psychologically, this really helped a lot of people out because we felt like, oh, look, I can talk to someone. I can make a difference. I can be heard. But as we all know, the downfall of putting yourself out there on social media is that you can get criticized. And I think something that's important to consider is that humans didn't evolve to have random, constant public criticism. Like the way we evolved is we evolved in small groups of probably 40 to 100 people, and you knew everybody in that group, and every now and then you'd meet another group. But generally, you didn't have a massive amount of public people engaging with you, being able to criticize you or say something to you. You just didn't meet that many people in your lifetime. And for the time when our brains were developing, we lived in these smaller groups, and we only had these kinds of smaller interactions. And that's what our brain evolved to process and deal with and know how to cope with. Mankind as we know it today is not a modern invention at all. We are ancient creatures. We didn't evolve to be able to hear the discourse of thousands of people at once or, or get criticized by random strangers. So let's say you post something on social media of yourself wearing a cool dress and someone in the comment says, well, that's a stupid dress or whatever their comment is. And that's the kind of thing where if you said it to someone walking down the street, that person who comments on people randomly like that is probably going to get punched in the face eventually because it's going to piss somebody off. But on social media, you can't always do something about it other than report them and block them. And the problem with that is I feel like it builds this sort of pent up anxiousness, this this pent up frustration about not having any kind of resolution to that. And the other downfall of social media, I think, is that it forces us into conversations which have to take place in smaller and smaller formats, like Twitter, you know, having a certain number of characters that you can use to tweet. And even on other platforms, if you go long in a post, it gets truncated. So people only see the first, you know, two or three lines of whatever you posted. So you have to make those first two or three lines super compelling because people don't have the attention span. And then the other problem is, even if people did have the attention span, they're getting, you know, pelted with thousands of comments from their friends and people they follow and everything else all at the same time. So it's really chaotic. People didn't evolve for this kind of chaos. That's one of the reasons we created this podcast is because we wanted to have like longer format conversations that were able to dive deep into people's areas of expertise and what they thought of the world and where they think we're going as a society and what we can kind of do about it. So as someone in the mental health field, I, I want to ask you, what do you think are the value of larger conversations, of exploring concepts that take more than a couple sentences to explain? And what is the impact that you think that has on people? Sure. I mean, I definitely think that having that short attention span, um, the, the, the constant, constantly being distracted is, is not necessarily a great thing for our mental health. I think that as a society, we are very anxious. And, you know, clinically speaking, anxiety is a form of being ungrounded. We're up in our thoughts. We're up in our heads. A lot of times we work so hard. We're so distracted by our screens, by what's going on. We forget to eat or we forget to go to the bathroom because we're not connected with our bodies. We're not connected 
with nature, especially a lot of people who are living in urban environments, it's hard to connect with the earth that sustains us. You know, we go to the grocery room, we get our food. We don't know really if we were thrown out into the wild, we wouldn't last very long. We've come pretty far from our, our, our roots. So I think that, you know, that's kind of like a, a metaphor for our, our culture as a whole is, you know, when, when we spend all of this time on the screen, on social media, you know, it's a screen, it's a virtual world, but it's not something we can touch. It's not something we can feel. It, it's hard to have a conversation on social media. How can you go back and forth with hundreds of people who are, are commenting and actually have a deep conversation? So I think it is important to be able to, to tune out and nurture the relationships that we have, nurture our bodies, grounding, grounding, grounding. That's a big thing with, with working with trauma. That's one of the biggest parts of treatment is finding ways to ground ourselves because trauma is, a, is an anxiety disorder, clinically speaking. And, and it, it's important to bring ourselves out of our headspace, out of our minds, which our society is a mind culture. We are so up in our heads and it's all about our intelligence and what we can figure out, what we can dream up, how far we can go. And in a sense that that can be very, there's a lot of possibilities there, but, it, but then we can't become disconnected from our own bodies, our homes. We can get out of balance in, in a certain sense. So I appreciate this podcast because I do like the ability to be able to have a deeper conversation about a lot of these things, which it is hard to, to, to broach these things and bring these things up on social media because the platform, there is there are limitations and people don't have very lengthy attention spans. And you kind of got to work with the algorithm in a sense. And that's something that I've kind of struggled with in creating my account and wanting to go deeper and not necessarily knowing how or, you know, using certain opportunities to, to do that. But really, it's hard. It's hard to do that in such a short format. It is. It is. And that short format is no accident. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, whatever the next thing is. I'm sure it's already made, but no one knows about it yet. These things are all built to make money and they're all built to capture our attention. They're all built. They all funnel us into a form of, of addiction and the dopamine reaction that comes from getting a few hundred likes or getting five likes or whatever it is. That's dopamine. They know it. You know, it's very much like a virtual way to sell drugs. We can't cope with that. Like intellectually, we might understand what's happening online, but our nervous systems are just out of the loop. What are some things we can do to ground us? That What are some sort of exercises that you recommend that, that pretty much anyone can do that, that would just kind of help? Right. Something that I did when, when I was working as a therapist with kids, one of the first activities that we would do was we would create kind of like, well, as a, as a therapist, we call it a trauma box. With kids, we didn't call it a trauma box. It was more of like a coping box. We would find a box and we might decorate it with certain things like images graphs of people that we loved or cut out magazines, things that we liked. And then inside of the box, we would put different kinds of, of grounding things for each of the senses. So something for like taste, touch, smell, sight, like all the senses. And we would put these in this box so that when the, the child felt uneasy, scared, afraid, whatever feeling that was difficult to get through, they could go to this box and find comfort. So it's kind of like this comfort box. And using that as like an example, what's really 
really important for grounding is to find activities or things that bring us into our bodies, into our sensations. So it could be lighting a candle. It could be taking a bath, especially when I worked with kids who had self-harm tendencies. Maybe it was using like a sugar scrub on your skin that had like essential oils in it or coloring, going for a walk, making a I was about to say mixtape because I've been watching Stranger Things, um, <laughs> making like a mixed, uh, a playlist, that would be the term, <laughs> uh, making, you know, something, some happy music, kind of disconnecting from the things like, I wouldn't say TV, because that is more of like a numbing, a zoning out type of thing. Um, you really want to be present in the moment and and just bring yourself into the awareness of the space that you're in. Because that's one of the things with trauma. When we experience trauma, it kind of rewires our brains. And so when we experience a trigger, for example, like if I, I was in a car accident and you know I have this hardwired, my, my brain is kind of wired that if I hear a certain noise, all of a sudden I'm what's called re-experiencing my trauma because this sensory event happened and it reminded me of my trauma. And so there I'm up in my head again. I'm not necessarily in the present moment. I am in the past reliving my trauma. So I would say that it's really important when you catch yourself being triggered by something where you're feeling anxious, unable to settle down or, or calm down or feeling irritable or whatever, um, finding ways of bringing yourself into your body, into the room that you're in, into just the physical space around you and out of your head. I would say that is that's helpful. Yes. Those ideas and activities sound like they'd be really helpful. I think storytelling can also play an important part in centering us when we're feeling all the emotions. Like if you're feeling an intense wave of grief or panic or anxiety, and those big feelings are suddenly just right there. A lot of times people have an automatic response like fight or flight or freeze or fawn. For me, I keep a list of helpful things to think about on my phone. And the first thing on the list is to acknowledge that, yes, I am scared right now or whatever my emotion is. Number two is to acknowledge that these feelings are the worst thing that's going to happen as long as I'm not in any immediate actual threat. Number three is to remind myself that I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through this. And then the fourth thing is to really ground myself and tell myself a story. I imagine myself and I'm staring this feeling in the face that I'm having and I'm staring at this feeling and I think to myself, yes, this is scary, but I can see past it. And I imagine myself physically looking past that emotion or that experience that I'm currently in. And that ability to imagine yourself seeing past the pain or whatever it is or living past that and reminding yourself that there's something on the other side of it, I think is really helpful. Because when you're afraid or when you're having overwhelming feelings, it's really easy to think, oh, this is going to last forever. And that just makes it worse. That just makes you want to give up. But instead, if you can imagine what your life is going to be on the other side of that, I think you're going to get through it in a lot better shape than you would otherwise. Right. That does require that self-awareness, like you were saying, to be able to be aware that you're experiencing something and that like my life isn't in danger. This is just my body's reaction to thinking that it's in danger. Depending on one's awareness of what they're going through and their body's reaction to those things will depend on their ability to kind of talk themselves out of it or bring themselves down. For sure. I, I would say for children, 
children, especially, that can be really hard. For them, it might almost be the concept of, say, if they like Furbies, for example, it'd be like, okay, next time you're feeling like that and you feel afraid, I want you to imagine like the Furby on the other side just waiting for you and you're going to be okay. Like they've got your back. They're going to make sure nothing bad happens to you and they're just, they're, they've got your back. And it's like, can we practice imagining that right now? So they have like almost like that intellectual muscle memory to like have that automatic storytelling response kick in next time they're scared. I think that could be a really powerful thing. Yeah. And that's, and that's honestly, that's, that's what it takes is just practice. If you struggle for, with something such as like anxiety or panic attacks, having that mirror, like a person who might be able to, to help, you know, whether a kid or an adult, having someone to reassure you that you're safe and you're okay and giving you some ideas or some reminders. These are some things that, that like you said, with the Furby, like I loved that example. Even if you don't have the physical object with you, you can em- em- visualize it and summon that feeling of, of comfort in that moment to kind of get you through. Yes. I feel like kids are especially primed for storytelling. And so if you can start this sort of habit with them earlier, they're a lot more likely to carry it forward as an adult. And to that end, I really wish more people carried toys with them into adulthood as well. I think there's a lot of sad kids out there that grew up to become grumpy adults, and it really shows. I know it might seem silly to some, but I love having elements of toys around me almost at all times. My friends know that if we all go out to an amusement park, I'm going to be the one that comes back with a couple stuffed animals. I even like to put little toys out in front of the house sometimes, just purely as decorations. A neighbor once came over who had just moved in, and she was so excited when she saw the toys. She's like, oh, you must have kids because she was thinking our kids could play together. And I was like, nope, no, I don't have children. It got a little awkward, but I, I don't regret it. Because the truth is having those toys out there, every time I see it, it, it just makes me happy. Like when I go to pick up a lot of Barbies off of like Facebook Marketplace, they're like, oh, do you have a daughter? I'm like, nope, nope, these are for me. <laughs> I wish more people... Uh, you know, even those people who, who are kind of disconnected, I would venture to guess that if they were to like go through an antique store or something and see an old toy of theirs, they would they would get that nostalgia high and, and find the joy from that. So I, I have hope yet. I hope so, too. I mean, I really do feel like toys toys are for everybody. And my life, I mean, just looking around the room that I happen to be in right now is like, oh, yeah, no, there's there's toys, there's remnants, there's sacred artifacts, like they're all here. And it's lovely. <laughs> I, I, I'm in the same type of room. <laughs> okay. What would you say to someone that or to a lot of the people out there that I think really do show up on a regular basis for the community online for like the Furby community specifically? What would you say to a lot of people that are they're artists, they're trying to help, they're trying to make a difference, but they're also experiencing burnout, like this sense of it always feels like a sprint. What would you say to sort of help them think of it more like a marathon? Like we're in it for the long haul. What are some suggestions you might have for them to help? Right. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is just, you know, nature has its cycles, right? Like we have a fall, a a winter, a spring, a summer, and, and those are gradual changes. Everything has its season, right? And we can't rush those seasons. They come and go as they're meant to come and go. And I think as, as human beings, we also have our seasons. Sometimes we're meant to be out in the world doing, doing, and helping other people. And sometimes life wants us to sit still and focus on ourselves. Um, and sometimes we're somewhere in between. Um, I personally you know, know from experience, I helped people in the mental health field for about a decade. And then I was like, 
I'm, I'm out. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Like I have been out, out, out helping, helping, helping for this amount of time. And now I have to do me. I just knew it was the right choice because I could not help people in the way that I wanted to help people anymore. I did not have the energy to give. And so I think it's really important for people to to recognize their limitations and recognize that you can help people by helping yourself. It's it's not always an outward thing. And I think it goes back to our conversation about our society. We're always looking out. We're always looking at the horizon. We're always over-caffeinated and doing, doing. Sometimes not doing is the answer. Sometimes taking rest, sometimes taking a sabbatical or whatever you want to call it is is what is needed because maybe your time for being out and, and doing is coming later and you need that period of rest in order to be ready for that. I had a friend once who this is related to like shopping, like there'll always be something pretty for me to buy. But right now I, I have to save my money, right? It's kind of like that with your energy too. Sometimes you don't have the energy to spend on certain things. So it's okay to, to, to rest. It's okay to take a break. It just depends on, on where you're at. And there will be opportunities later if now is not the time. Yes, I think cycles are really critical to understanding our role as humans. Like, we need rest, we need relationships, we need food, water, air, all of that. But we also need things like a sense of safety, a sense of belonging. And those things rely on our relationships with others, which can also sometimes be complicated. You know, that's really, I mean, of course, human relationships can be complicated. But as far as creature comforts go, having just a friend someone to turn to, it's very simple. You know, it doesn't cost money to have a friend, hopefully, you know, um, in most situations. (laughs) It's kind of like this need to recognize that more simplicity could really help us out. I've been actually, I just helped my mom downsize and move out of her home. I also helped my mother-in-law clear out her home within the past two years. So now more than ever, I have realized how possessions and things when collected so much over time can become such a burden. And I've been like watching all the Marie Kondo that I can. And there is this beauty and simplicity and finding joy in little things. Um, it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to cost a lot of money. Finding balance and finding some more of our comforts in simpler ways, I think, can can make our lives better in a, in a lot of different ways. I, I think you're right. And you talked about helping your mother clear her house and sort of the simplicity that that brought I think for a lot of our listeners, they might actually be afraid of that time when they help their parents or their loved ones or their friends clear house and downsize for the reason that they're getting older and they don't necessarily want to keep up as much space or as many things. And for many of us, this time comes when our loved one is already gone. And I want to encourage listeners not to be so afraid of that time. And yes, these are unfortunate things, but with it, there can also be a simplicity and even a deeper sense of meaning. I have cleared my share of houses after a loved one dies, and I did it probably 20, 30 years before most of my friends ever will, and sometimes I did a lot of that work alone. There's a weird sort of sense to it that this is 
important. Like when you're doing it, you start to realize this is more important than I ever thought it would be. It felt like I was sitting with the last memories of this person on earth and I got to have the honor of helping them say goodbye. And for me, the things of theirs that I chose to keep are things that are just deeply sentimental, deeply personal. And having those things around me for me is a reminder that I'm not alone. And also that I have family that loves me and friends that love me and chosen family that loves me. And it's really empowering. So I hope for people that are going to go through that in the future that are really dreading that. I I want you to know, again, it's like looking past that fear or looking past that sadness and saying, I have a life after that, or I'm going to be existing after that. Because I think there's just this profound sense of belonging and honor that our society doesn't always acknowledge, but that you can really find when you do that kind of work. And if you don't mind sharing, I'd love to know what was your experience like with helping your mom? I mean, with helping with helping my mom, there's definitely an aspect of building my understanding of her and her history and going through all of the things she's held on to, seeing the things that she holds on to versus the things that she's willing to let go of. There's definitely a process of kind of helping someone at a later stage in their life in moving on to a new chapter. There's a burden to having the responsibility of, you know, physically having to go through a bunch of things and move a bunch of things. But there's also this emotional reward of being able to see like, well, you know what, I'm this is going to be me in the future. (laughs) I'm going to also be at this juncture, hopefully one day when I'm older, even at this age, I can still let go of the old and start anew again. So there's definitely in downsizing and and getting rid of things and going through old things and revisiting the past. There's definitely a, a, a healing to that or a transformation to that as you decide, you know, what from your past you want to take into the future and what you want to leave behind. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, Michelle, I'm getting flagged here by one of our Furby directors in the studio letting me know that it is time for this episode, unfortunately, to draw to a close. It's been so great talking with you today. Thank you so much again for everything. We really appreciate it. And we would love to have you back here sometime in the future for more awesome conversations. Yeah, that sounds that sounds wonderful. And, you know, with with the world changing as it is, who knows where we'll be a year from now. So it's the spiral. You know, these conversations will grow and we could have the same conversation in a year from now and it could be a completely, completely different. Exactly. Exactly. We're we're. The, 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 I think the big takeaway is we're here for the journey. We're here for ourselves, not in the ego sense, but we're, you know, we're here for ourselves to be aware of what we need to take care of ourselves and to be aware of our community and support each other. And in whatever the world or anything throws our way, as long as we keep trying f- for that, I think that's really the best way forward. Right. I agree. Well, Michelle, it has been so awesome to have you here on the Furb World podcast today. We hope to see you again. Thanks so much. Bye. And now to everyone out there in podcast land. Keep your verbs close and your friends closer. Life is short. Have a good time. Subscribe to our podcast and we'll hang out again soon and dive into the Ditherverse.
Now it's time for our nonprofit shout out. At the end of every episode, we'll list some of our favorite nonprofits so you can donate to them and really make a difference. Or if you're in need of help or know someone else who is, these are some places that might be able to help. Nonprofit number one, Trans Lifeline, a peer support crisis hotline serving transgender people by offering phone support and micro grants available in the United States and Canada. Nonprofit number two, the National Center for Transgender Equality. Do you want to fight for trans rights? The National Center for Transgender Equality will help you take national and local action. Number three, the Southern Poverty Law Center. This nonprofit specializes in civil rights and public interest legislation. They also monitor hate groups and other extremist groups and report their activities to law enforcement agencies. Number four, the Native American Rights Fund, providing legal advocacy to help create a world where Native rights, resources, and lifeways are protected. Number five, and one of my favorites, the Sogo Riate Land Trust. This indigenous Bay Area nonprofit seeks to rematriate the land that is now known as Oakland, San Francisco, and basically the Bay Area in California. These are just some of our favorite nonprofits, but we also encourage you to get involved with nonprofits on a local level. We encourage you to do your part when you can. Volunteer for these organizations. Ask how you can help. Donate money when you can. Some organizations even accept donations like used cars, so you never know. It's important to get involved. You can make a difference. Uh, this concludes the broadcast of the Furb World Into the Diverse podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope to have you next time.